Our first lesson today comes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, the second chapter. Let us listen to God's word. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time, and he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we asked of you, for you have revealed to us what the king ordered. Our second scripture lesson comes from John chapter 3. Listen again for God's word and wisdom for us today. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. One of the things I look forward to every year during our annual trip to Canada is the darkness. After arriving and moving into our cabin for the week, getting the fishing gear set up, putting the motor on the boat and the kayaks in the water, having dinner with, uh, and, and catching up with family in the other cabins. What I love is the way darkness settles over the camp. We see these three different kinds of twilight that I mentioned in my email on Friday. We see the civil twilight when it just gets, is just dark enough to need some light to assist us. And the nautical twilight when stars become visible enough for navigation. In the astronomical twilight, when we can see faint stars more clearly, in the ever-increasing darkness, stars become more visible individually and in their clusters. Satellites fly overhead, shooting stars flash by for an instant, 
and the vastness of the Milky Way is on full display. I am regularly amazed by what we see as the fullness of darkness overtakes the day. Then we go to bed, and as soon as we turn out the lights, there is a darkness unlike any I experience anywhere else. That's when I do my vision test. I lay there in bed, and I wave my hand in front of my face, and without fail, every year, I can't see my hand this close to my face. That's how dark it is there. I am literally in the dark, and it invites me to rest and pay attention differently. As I focus less on what is happening directly in front of me, my other senses get engaged. I become more aware of other things around me, so much happening in the, that I don't notice in the daylight. Frogs croaking, raccoons scavenging, loons calling, fish coming up to the surface to slurp a bug, the water lapping against the rocks, the wind in the trees nearby. Life is happening all around me, and it feels less differentiated and more like it's together somehow, unified in a larger wholeness. And I'm a part of that wholeness. And I feel a sense of wonder and awe. That's what we hope you, you will feel this Advent season, a sense of wonder and awe as we look into the ever-increasing darkness of this season and we discover there that we discover there what opens us up to wonder and awe in our faith. Our Advent theme this year in darkness and in light invites us to enter the darkness, not as a scary place, but a place that allows us to see in ways that the light around us won't let us see, as a place of goodness and even as a place where God dwells. We often hear scripture passages at this time of year like, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And as Tammy and I discovered in liturgy that we looked at over the years that we have shared with you, we often lift up light as more valuable than darkness. We often treat darkness as the enemy of light rather than a place of mystery, as if light is supposed to be the new normal, the ideal, and darkness is something to be overcome. And from a historical perspective in human history, I get it. For thousands of years, getting light has been a hassle, according to the NPR podcast, Planet Money. In the History of Light episode, they noted that until the 1800s, people had to get creative in the ways that they made light. In the tropics, people would catch fireflies and make a sort of firefly, firefly lantern. In Scotland, there was this bird called the storm petrel. It's a very oily seabird. And people would catch them, dry them, and then thread a wick down their throat, light it, and essentially carry a dead carcass to give them some light. In Babylonian times, 4,000 years ago, a day's wages got you about 10 minutes of light. Throughout human history, most people have spent a significant amount of time making candles or pressing oil to allow them to have a little bit of light in the darkness. Light was such a hassle to get until kerosene in the 1850s, and then Thomas Edison's invention of the light bulb and the power plant in the 1880s changed everything. And suddenly, light became normal, almost ubiquitous, and by and large today, we take it for granted. Light is so global and abundant that whole sections of satellite maps of the United States don't even have darkness any longer. 
The issue for us isn't that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. The issue for us today is that there's so much light, we have stopped learning how to see in the dark, let alone be in the dark, and let it ignite the other senses we have and feel a sense of wonder and awe. That's why I appreciate Wendell Berry's poem, To Know the Dark. In it, he says, to go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight. And find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. I wonder sometimes if, if we've been trained to be so wary of the dark that we no longer see it as a gift. Light has become so normal for us that we no longer let darkness help us see differently. I appreciate the French proverb that says, by candlelight, a goat is ladylike. <laughs> we aren't sure we can trust what we see when we don't have enough light. Light sharpens images and creates contrasts. It helps us see more clearly. We put more lights in, this, in the sanctuary here during the Capitol campaign because there were so many shadows up front that people online couldn't see us very well. Oddly, this was the darkest part of the room. But what are we missing that only darkness can reveal? What blooms and sings and even shines in the darkness? Our scripture readings today invite us to go dark in order to know God better. In our first lesson, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was having weird and troubling dreams as he slept in the darkness, so much so that he commanded all of his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, counselors, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king what the dreams meant. Only Nicodemus wouldn't tell his spiritual advisors what was actually happening in the dreams. He expected them to know the dreams without him saying anything. I don't know what it is about some people who expect others, like their spouses or their co-workers, their pastors or their best friends, to be able to read their minds and somehow know what they're thinking or feeling or needing without saying any of it out loud. Maybe they're embarrassed to say it. Or maybe there's, there's something about creating an impossible test that makes people feel superior or justified that they can get irritated at somebody even though they said nothing. My seminary training, I want to admit to you, did not include mind reading classes. But no matter how often I say that, people still think I can do it. So unfortunately, if we can't figure out what's on their minds, they just get mad and accuse us of not caring or paying attention while we remain in the dark about what's even going on. Nebuchadnezzar went one step further. He declared that if none of his wise men could figure out what he was dreaming about and what it all meant, then he would kill them all. The king's advisors panicked and turned to Daniel, one of the other advisors who wasn't there when Nebuchadnezzar made his outrageous demands. Daniel asked for some time, went to his home, informed his companions, and together they sought help from the God of heaven to understand this mystery. They weren't keen on dying either, it turns out. But they also knew that they wouldn't find the answers 
in the midst of all those other people and the way they were going about the search. Daniel and his friends were right. The answer didn't come by day at the palace among those advisors. The mystery of the king's dreams was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. We aren't told why it happened that way, but I wonder if it had something to do with the night itself. In the light of day, everyone was panicked. All they could see, uh, could see was the impossible task before them and the anxiety that everyone was feeding on as they tried to figure out what to do. Daniel decided to look at the situation in the dark. He entered the quiet, discerning time of darkness, when things are still and you can hear yourself think, when the hustle and bustle of the day slows down, when the sharpness of light blurs and the demands of the day fade into the background, when you become aware of a larger world and your place in it. That's when we can see things differently. That's when God can speak to us and we can listen. That's when Daniel heard God speak, answering his prayers, explaining the king's dreams, and sparing all of their lives. Daniel couldn't help but offer a blessing for what had happened in the dark. Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Daniel went dark and discovered hidden things of God. And in that darkness, Daniel's discovered God's presence and wisdom necessary to respond to the king's demands. In our second scripture lesson, Nicodemus goes dark too in search of answers he was afraid to ask during the, the bright light of day. He was a religious leader who had, been, who had heard about Jesus' teaching and the impact of his ministry, but he didn't understand what it all meant. Nicodemus was in the dark, so like Daniel, he went in the dark to talk to Jesus about it all. He was probably there to avoid being seen by others, especially the religious leaders. The last thing he needed was to be seen consorting with Jesus or sharing his own darkness about life and faith, even though that's what he needed. He needed the darkness because the contrast between his understanding of religious life and who Jesus was and what he was doing was too sharp in the light. There under the cover of night, Jesus tried to explain to him that the kingdom of God isn't some otherworldly thing. It's the union of water and spirit. It's the union of flesh and spirit, not just in Jesus, but in all of us. Mysteriously, it's the presence of God in all things, yet contained by none. Nicodemus couldn't imagine how God was with Jesus, let alone with all of us. All the ways he understood faith in the light of day didn't help him see what Jesus was trying to show him there in the mystery of darkness. It's not easy to feel like you don't understand, to live in uncertainty and unknowing, to ask how can these things be and live in the search of that question. But I wonder if Nicodemus' darkness isn't something we all know. The darkness of confusion and doubt, the darkness of uncertainty of how life is going and what to do about it. Life and faith weren't making sense any longer for Nicodemus. And the way darkness blurred the assumed answers and rigid distinctions that were so clear during the day, 
allowed him to see a bigger picture of Jesus and what God was trying to do with him in the night. Nicodemus didn't leave the conversation that night with anything figured out, but he knew, but what we do know is that in that time in the darkness, he began to see a bigger world. Later in the gospel, Nicodemus stood up for Jesus when the religious leaders plotted to kill him. And at the end of the gospel, Nicodemus spent a whole lot of money to buy myrrh and aloe to care for Jesus' body after his crucifixion. We aren't told if he ever understood what Jesus was trying to say. But Nicodemus seemed willing to live into the mystery of faith rather than the certainty of his own religious upbringing and to look for God in the sun and the shadows, in the light and in the darkness. What would it mean for us to enter the, into the darkness of this season of, year, of the year and the darkness of Advent? To set aside the clarity that light brings and the things that it blocks out. And let the mystery of this season and the darker days show us something new and more. In his book, A New Ancient Harmony, A Celtic Vision for the Journey into Wholeness, John Philip Newell tells the story of going on a pilgrimage in the Sinai and up Mount Sinai where Moses is believed to have seen the burning bush. On the last day, he says, we made our way up Mount Sinai, climbed half of it on camelback, then hiked the centuries-old carved steps of stone to the peak for sunset. No one was with us on the summit as the setting sun threw its red radiance across the great range of desert peaks. We visited the three shrines of prayer that honor the disclosure of the Holy One in this place, one Jewish, one Christian, one Muslim and then descended the mountain in silence. The moon was fat, and its whiteness shone off the desert sand. At the mountain base, we approached the 4th century St. Catherine's Monastery, where we were to spend the night. In the moonlight, the building looked as it might have looked at any time in its 16 centuries. And although it held within its walls a Christian monastic community, a burning bush revered by Jewish pilgrims, a mosque prayed in by Muslims all from all around the world. Under the moon's light, it looked as one. Carl Jung speaks of moon-like consciousness, a way of seeing in which we, are more readily, we more readily perceive oneness than differentiation. Newell says, when I walk under the light of the moon, I am at times almost speechless with wonder. Under the moonlight, life's edges are not so sharply defined. The boundaries are less distinct. In the daylight, I have much more to say because I am seeing everything more analytically. The parts are easily distinguished from the whole. Moonlight consciousness sees the world of unitary vision rather than separation. What has happened to that consciousness in us? The next day, under the, under the scorching heat of a sunny day, Newell noticed Jewish pilgrims scolding their children for tearing off bits of the burning bush. Muslims attending, attend, Muslim attendants at the mosque barking out instructions for visitors to take off their shoes, and Christian monks avidly selling tickets so that the pilgrims might view the ancient holy manuscripts. This was no longer a moon-like consciousness. 
This was, this was consciousness and seeing by the light of day. The reality is we need both. We need a moonlight consciousness and a sunlight consciousness, even if the latter has a way of highlighting the crude nature of our separations. We need the distinct wisdoms that underlie our different cultures and traditions, but without moonlight consciousness, without remembering that our human journey began as one and that the birth of earth and its unfolding life are one, we will splinter further and further into fragmented parts in which we dangerously forget the whole. How might the darkness of this Advent season reconnect us to the big picture of God's presence in the world all around us, we say. In these times of increasing polarization and division, how might the deep longings we share in the, deep, in, in the deepest night, yearnings for lives of health and wholeness, of safety and abundance, of peace and love, not just for ourselves, but for all God's children and this world God loves, how might these longings unite us in a vision of peace on earth Good will for all. The answer, I think, today is to go dark and see what God is ready to show you and me there of life and wholeness, of God becoming one of us, of God being with us in darkness and in light. Amen.